Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This week, telltale waste products thrown out by cancer cells could help diagnose the disease early. Since every cell type releases these particles, exosomes, is there a way to identify them that are released by the cancer cells? And how circulation in the Earth's atmosphere is affecting heat waves. So if the frequency of one of these particular circulation patterns changes, you could expect an increase or a decrease in warm or cool conditions. Plus the surprising biodiversity of Antarctica. This is The Nature Podcast for June the 25th, 2015. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Antarctica. What's that about? Apart from some penguins, the odd leopard seal and some albatross, it's a completely empty, barren, inhospitable wasteland. Am I right? No, actually, Kerry, you're wrong. Armed with ever more sophisticated tools for sampling, we're starting to realise that this southern continent's biodiversity is actually pretty impressive, if a little weird. Jeff Marsh called Stephen Chown of Monash University in Melbourne, who's recently compiled a review of Antarctica's newfound biology. Well, terrestrially, because it's essentially an ice-covered continent, the perception has been that there's not very much biodiversity there at all. In the Southern Ocean, much of the view was based on very few fish. And so overall, the, the early opinion was that this was not an especially rich continent for life. And you've written a review this week about our revamped appreciation of Antarctic biodiversity. Um, let's start off having a look at the marine environment. What do we now know about the life in the oceans surrounding Antarctica? More than 8,000 marine species are now known from the Southern Ocean. Many of those from the sea floor, or what's known as benthic species. Some work undertaken in the deep Weddell Sea recovered more than 650 isopod species. These are animals that look a little like wood lice or slaters in the terrestrial environment, but are indeed marine. And amazingly, more than 80% of those were new to science. Right, so this isn't just biological richness. These newly found species are actually of biological importance. Yes, indeed. Some are quite interesting and unusual from an evolutionary perspective. So uh, a group that was studying acorn worms, which are quite an unusual marine group, discovered that the ones in the Antarctic area still live in translucent tubes. Now, the last time that was seen was somewhere in the middle Cambrian, suggesting that the behaviour of constructing these translucent tubes has been maintained for 500 million years. Let's move now on to the land. Surely there are some species groups that are underrepresented on the Antarctic land surface. 
Yes, well, that's definitely true. So if one was going for a search for uh, typical flowering plants, uh, one would be quite disappointed in the Antarctic because they're just two species, a small pearlwort and a grass. And indeed, also from the insect perspective, things are quite uh, impoverished. There's a fair richness of lichens. There's over 200 species and mosses. There's about 100 species of those. And then small invertebrates such as nematodes and tardigrades. But the real diversity, and in some instances the really extraordinary diversity, lies in the microorganisms. So, for example, there's a really a very rich diversity of viruses, which no one really expected. There's also a host of weird and wonderful aquatic landscapes on the continent. Yes, I think that's perhaps something that's least appreciated by people. These systems are again dominated by the microbiota or microorganisms and they have some really rich communities. They're microbial mats that are important in the system. They're very highly diverse viral systems and then perhaps most significantly of all as a consequence of recent exploration of free water below glaciers and in this case Lake Willens which is 800 metres down, uh, a diverse metabolically active group of bacteria and archaea. So far from being the uniformly devoid of life area, uh, we found out that there is a lot of biodiversity in and around Antarctica and it's highly structured. Yes, so, so if we look across the region, if you just think of the continental Antarctic, which is about the size of the continuous USA, we find that one can differentiate very clearly 15 distinct what have been called Antarctic conservation biogeographic regions. There are many more in the Southern Ocean, and so it really is turning out to be not just one big homogeneous icy waste on land or a very well-mixed set of, of sea around this huge Southern Ocean, but, but a highly structured, well-diversified uh, region. What challenges currently face the Antarctic? Probably one of the most significant of those is the extent of resource exploitation in the form of fishing in the Southern Ocean. There's, of course, significant climate change that's underway everywhere. There are folk moving into the region, either for tourism or science sake, and associated with them are invasive alien species. These are some of the, the major risks that are facing the region, at least from a conservation perspective. And uh, how is the conservation strategy going? Because it's quite a complex international space, Antarctica. Probably the best way to assess these would be to have a look at what has been agreed almost globally by many countries under the Convention uh, on Biological Diversity. And they have identified 20 targets, which have been named the Aichi targets. So by the Aichi targets requirement of 10% of marine and nearshore areas protected, Antarctica is doing extremely poorly. And globally, there's a target of 17% of terrestrial areas. And yet in the Antarctic, if you consider its ice-free areas, then only 1.5% of those are formally protected. I mean, what would you say is the take-home message of this paper? What would you like to see uh, happening in order to give Antarctica's biodiversity the best chance? I, th I think there's, there's a great appetite amongst the Antarctic Treaty parties to do things. And one of the take-home measures of the paper is that there should be a formal assessment of how the area is doing relative to the Aichi targets. I think that that would be a, a great outcome. That was reporter Jeff Marsh speaking with Stephen Chown. You can check out the full paper at nature.com slash nature. 
It's no secret that greenhouse gas emissions are warming the globe. But how is this affecting extreme temperature events like heat waves and cold snaps? Overall, heat waves are increasing and cold snaps are decreasing, like you'd expect. But these changes aren't the same all over the world. This is because the overall temperature, or thermodynamics, isn't the only thing that can affect temperature extremes. Changes to circulation patterns in the Earth's atmosphere may also be playing a role. Now, new research has worked out how much these two factors, temperature and air movement, influence periods of extreme hot and cold around the world. I spoke with Daniel Horton of Stanford University, who came up with the study. Uh, weather circulation patterns are often associated with uh, warm conditions or cool conditions. And so if the frequency of one of these particular circulation patterns changes, you could expect an increase or a decrease in warm or cool conditions. And in this study, how do you differentiate between different patterns of circulation in the atmosphere? Uh, in this study, we do something kind of novel. The software involved is similar to what is used in facial recognition software in that um, you're looking for patterns uh, that are similar. What the algorithm does that we use is it, it looks at atmospheric circulation patterns over the past 35 years and it groups the patterns that are similar to each other into clusters. And then so what our research has done is we've, we've looked at the frequency of occurrence of particular clusters over time to see whether they've increased or decreased in frequency. And what do you see when you look over the last 35 years? Are these patterns just happening at random times? Or is there some kind of trend to how frequently certain patterns are taking place? In some regions and in some seasons, we don't see any particular trends in any particular circulation patterns. But in some regions uh, and in some seasons, we do see trends in these circulation patterns. Uh, we also find that the risk of extreme temperature over some regions has been altered by changes in the frequency and duration of some of these regional circulation patterns. But by and large, the majority of the change that we find is from thermodynamic warming. Are there any events in recent years where the change in frequency of circulation patterns has made that kind of extreme temperature event more likely? One of the results that we highlight in the paper comes from the European domain. There's been an increase in um, ridging events. You may have heard them referred to as, uh, as blocking highs, that sort of thing. Now, this particular pattern is very similar to the patterns that were in the atmosphere during the 2003 European heat wave and during the 2010 Russian heat wave. Have we seen anywhere where extremely hot days have decreased or extremely cold days have increased? One of the, the more interesting results we found is over uh, Central Asia in the winter. Due to global scale warming, we, we in general expect extremely hot days to increase in the future and extremely cold days uh, to decrease in the future. But over this particular region, we've noticed that there's been an increase in extremely cold days, which is kind of contradictory. But what we've been able to identify is a particular circulation pattern that uh, explains why these uh, extremely cold conditions are increasing. And that has to do with an increase of cold air moving down from the Arctic into this region. As you said, some of these circulation patterns are changing in their frequency. Do we know what's causing that change in frequency? Is it just random variation? There have been some that have suggested that these sort of dynamical changes 
may be driven by changes through the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere or perhaps through a reduction of Arctic sea ice. That said, uh, in this particular study, we haven't done uh, a formal fingerprinting or an attribution. Uh, so what we can say is that the thermodynamic changes that we observe are consistent with predictions of global warming. Whereas we're still uncertain if the observed changes in circulation are driven by greenhouse gas changes or are simply the result of, uh, of natural variability. And looking forward, if temperature on the Earth keeps increasing and the trends that we've seen in circulation patterns continue, whether or not that's caused by humans, what would that mean for extreme temperature events? The fact that the majority of the trends that we observe are driven by the thermodynamic components means that if we continue to add carbon dioxide uh, and other greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, an increase in extremely hot days and a decrease in extremely cold days will continue into the future. That was Daniel Horton. Coming up, an early test for pancreatic cancer. But first, it's time for the research highlights with Noah Baker. Some kangaroo species are left-handed, which challenges the idea that handedness is distinctive to humans. New research looked at seven species of marsupial, including kangaroos and opossums, to see if they preferred using a particular arm. All of the two-legged species used their left forelimbs more often, but the four-legged species seemed just as happy using either left or right. This implies that walking on two legs may be crucial to whether a species displays handedness. The full study is in Current Biology. Colon cancer cells can be turned back into healthy ones by turning on a particular gene. Researchers genetically engineered mice so this gene could be switched on using an RNA molecule. The team watched precancerous polyps shrink under the treatment. The technique even turned cells back to normal when the mice had full-blown tumours. The gene, APC, is a tumour suppressor that's mutated in most colon cancers. Targeting its cell signalling pathway could point the way to a cure. For the full study, head over to Cell. Thanks, Noah. For more on colorectal cancer research, check out our recent video at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. But how do we detect cancer in the first place? Well, if cancers are caught early and treated, many can be cured or at least kept at bay. But later in the disease process, cancer can be too widespread or too aggressive to be stopped. The trouble is there are very few reliable early signs of cancer. Sure, some markers for cancer do exist, particular proteins or genes in the affected tissue, but often they're not very specific. A new report has found a way to pick up early warning signs of cancer, just with a simple blood test. Here's the principle. Every cell in the body gets rid of excess proteins now and again, and these float around in the blood as little packets called exosomes. If you could tell the difference between cancer exosomes and healthy cell exosomes, could you pick up the telltale signs of cancer? Researchers led by Raghu Kaluri at the MD Anderson Cancer Centre at the University of Texas think they can. They've been working with pancreatic cancer. Here's Raghu with more. Yes, so exosomes are virus-sized particles that are shed by all cell types. And the idea is that these little particles are shed in a way to take away some of the excess proteins that are present in the cell. Although recent data suggests that there may be some specificity to the type of proteins that the cells are putting 
out in these exosome-like particles. So these are lipid bilayer particles. They are uh, about 100 nanometers on average in size. And our interest was to ask the question, since every cell type releases these particles called exosomes, is there a way to identify them that are released by the cancer cells? And that would then give us an idea of um, the cancer load that the patient may have and what type of things that you can identify in the exosome that could potentially be, de be being derived from the cancer cells. So if you could tell the difference between exosomes that have come from cancer cells and exosomes that have come from healthy cells, you could diagnose cancers that have those differences really easily because you just these things are floating around in the bloodstream, aren't they? Yes, they are. And in fact, all of us are floating exosomes at all times in our blood. And uh, obviously, cancer patients are floating exosomes derived from cancer cells, along with exosomes coming from many other cell types. So if there's a way to identify cancer specific exosomes away from all the other exosomes coming from other cells, then that would give us an indication of the cancer that the person has. It would be amazing to do that. And the reason we're talking is that it is now possible for pancreatic cancer. Uh, we think so. Um, there's, of course, more work to be, need to be done. But this is a clinical study uh, where we use about 250 patients and many other uh, healthy individuals. And we were able to identify in all of those 250 patients cancer exosome using this particular protein on the surface of these exosomes called glipican-1. So if glipican-1 is present on the surface of exosomes from the serum of an individual, then there is an indication that this person has pancreatic cancer. And would this work for other types of cancer or would you need different biomarkers in each case? Well, so far we have shown that cancer cells uh, originating from uh, different organs uh, for example, colon or lung, or in fact, uh, even breast cancer, all contain this particular protein on the surface. So this could be a generic cancer marker. But from our initial study uh, in the breast cancer, in a small cohort of patients, it shows that not every patient with breast cancer is positive, but many are. But with pancreatic cancer, we find that every pancreatic cancer patient was positive. So we think that there's a potential for this biomarker for other cancers also, but we wanted to present the pancreatic uh, cancer example first because there the study was resulted in 100% specificity and sensitivity. How easy is it to do this test? I mean, it's easy for the patient, right? They just give you a little bit of blood. Uh, yes, turns out that we can actually detect it uh, from as little as about 150 to 200 microliters of blood, which is quite a small amount of blood. And uh, in fact, uh, uh, this can be easily uh, performed by any uh, pathology laboratory. Uh, it's just a very easy, simple way of isolating exosomes from the serum of a person. Uh, you then perform a one-step analysis. So we don't think that this is a very challenging diagnostic test. So how far is it then from being able to be rolled out? Because, you know, it's easy for the patient to agree to. It's easy for pathologists to do the test. I mean, it sounds like, you know, in a few years, it ought to be a kind of preemptive screening once a year cancer test. We hope so. But as with any such finding, uh, we would like uh, to do a few more patients. Uh, I think that a you know, few more hundred patients should be probably tested. And if it turns out that the test is functioning as we are predicting, 
then I think that it's ready to roll out for uh, diagnostic purposes. That was biologist Raghu Kaluri in Houston, Texas. The paper is at nature.com slash nature, where you'll also find an analysis piece about the research. Now it's time for News Chat, and Ewan Calloway joins me in the studio. Hi, Ewan. Howdy. So Ewan joining us in the studio normally means that someone or something died a long time ago and someone or something is investigating that thing. What has died this week? So this was an ancient human uh, known as Kennewick Man. He died approximately 9,500 years ago near a city in eastern Washington called Kennewick. He was found in 1996 by a couple of teens. They saw a skull called the police who got an anthropologist who turned up what was then and still is one of the most complete human remains from North America of that age. But very quickly, some local Native American tribes in the area asked the government, which managed the area around there, to have these bones back because Kennewick Man is our ancestor. The anthropologist who excavated him and some other supporting scientists um, said there's no way to prove that and remains of this age are, are incredibly rare. And so they sued. And in 2004, one final appeal to get the opportunity to study him. Part of their study was trying to get DNA out of him, and they utterly failed. Uh, you know, the DNA was just too degraded. Enter a scientist named Eska Willerslev, whom we've had on the podcast before, and he got hold of the remains a few years ago and managed to get a, a genome out of him, a low-quality one, but, but a genome none, nonetheless. And what does that analysis show us about Kennewick Man? First off, that he is more closely related to Native Americans than to any other humans on the planet. And there had been some claims based on the shape of Kennewick Man's head that maybe he represented this this very early migration. And that's not true, this genome now makes clear. But the researchers went one step further and asked, are there any groups of Native Americans, tribes, uh, that are more closely related to Kennewick Man than others? And the answer is, is yes. One of the groups that he's more closely related to is one of the tribes, the, the Colville, or it's a group of tribes, of confederated tribes, that is seeking to rebury his remains. But the problem, as the researchers say, is that he's, he's related to a lot of other tribes. So was the original argument that this wasn't an ancestor of Native Americans based on skull shape? Because from an outside perspective, it seems, well, this is an ancient human. The first people to arrive in America were Native Americans. Yeah, I mean, and I, and I talked with a lot of scientists, and a lot of people said, I'm not surprised by that conclusion. That's that's what I would have thought. But, you know, I mean, there, there, there are migrations that occurred all over the world that we don't know about. So you have to keep an open mind. But Kennewick Man was found a fair while ago. Why has it taken so long to get to this stage where we can actually trace the family tree of Kennewick Man? Technology, you know, when he was discovered and analyzed, just wasn't wasn't there. And so now, you know, with this, this ability to extract and read these very short degraded segments of DNA, can we only scrape together the most, most rudimentary of, of genome sequences? It seems like one of the biggest lessons to learn from Kennewick Man is not about research itself, but about the controversy around research. I mean, what, what can we learn from this? in how we deal with sensitive human remains like this in the future. Native Americans or indigenous groups or just research participants, they don't need to be adversaries with scientists. And the researcher, Eska Willerslev, who led this study, has over the years you know, made it a point to, to involve local communities, whether it's Australian aboriginals or Montana tribes or you know, the tribes of, of, of eastern Washington. And so when he discovered that this individual had Native American ancestry, he got in touch with the tribes 
told him about his finding, about the limitations, and said, you know, we'd like to, you to participate in this research. Would you like to give DNA? Uh, you know, and, and we'll continue to keep you informed. And, you know, one of these groups said yes, and some members um, traveled to his lab in Copenhagen to see where they extracted Kenneth McMahon's DNA. And so, I mean, there, there are laws that govern these things, but they set a minimum of what, what you need to do. And scientists like Eska Willerslev and, and other people are showing that there's a lot more you can do. And, and it probably benefits both groups, to be honest. So Kenneth McMahon isn't the only ancient human to have their family trees scrutinized lately, is he? And this story is a lot less controversial, at least politically less controversial. Scientifically, we'll see. In Nature this week, some genome data of this very early modern human, I think he's about, you know, 37 to 42,000 years old, was reported. And he came from this cave in, in Romania. Uh, he's known as Owasi One. But what's really interesting about him are two things. Number one, he has more Neanderthal DNA than any other ancient or modern uh, skeleton we've yet studied. And his Neanderthal DNA, there are quite large chunks of it in his chromosome. And that's suggesting that he had a Neanderthal ancestor in the very recent past, as recently as a great-great-grandparent. And that means almost certainly that humans and Neanderthals in, in Europe were having sex and having viable offspring, which is something that we haven't known before. The second thing that's really interesting about this individual is that he and his population don't seem to have any descendants, meaning their kind went extinct. And it's most likely that another population of hunter-gatherers kind of moved in and replaced them. And what this is really just showing us is that human evolution and human migration was just a really bushy tree uh, with a lot of dead ends. Is this the most Neanderthal human we've ever found? And is there anything we can see in the remains that give a clue to that? The researchers who described it said its teeth and jaws don't look like that of any modern human they've seen. And they proposed it was, if not a first-generation hybrid between humans and Neanderthals, but something something close to it. It has like the biggest molars that people have seen you know, in, in anything called a human ever of all time. And the researcher who made it kind of made this claim and kind of people ignored him and was like, oh, that's Eric just being crazy, Eric. And he was right. Not a lot of people took it seriously. And here he is vindicated. So hats off to him, as one of my sources said. Great. Thanks, Ewan, for shedding some light on some more ancient remains. That's all for this week. Tune in next time to learn all about sex-changing lizards. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.